The time is now. Volume 6, Episode 111, This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, your host, and of course the Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. You know, I love to be able to bring guests on to this podcast who are actually the ones making law, making policy, making headlines. The EEOC, as a federal agency, is a constant source of action on the HR and employment law front, and I am honored that another current EEOC commissioner is willing to join me on the podcast today. So we are honored to have uh, current commissioner of the EEOC, Andrea Lucas, join us on the podcast today. Uh, For those of you who do not know Commissioner Lucas, she was confirmed by the United States Senate as commissioner of the EEOC on September 22nd, 2020, for a term to expire on July 1st, 2025. Prior to that, Commissioner Lucas was in private practice at a uh, well-esteemed Washington, D.C. law firm. Uh, An impressive educational uh, couple of stops at both the University of Pennsylvania and then for law school at the University of Virginia. And interestingly enough, the EEOC's website provides this tremendous fun fact uh, that you are the only, only the second commissioner to give birth during your tenure at the commission. Um, commissioner Lucas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. That was a great uh, fun fact uh, on the website uh, that I did notice. So only the second commissioner. Yeah, I believe uh, Commissioner Silverman was the the last or the first one to do that. Um, but yeah, it's been a whirlwind uh, first year for sure. Well, and to that point, you obviously were confirmed to join the commission right at the heart of this uh, generational pandemic in the middle of 2020. How has that transition been? Uh, you know, it, it's been good, but it, like I said, it has been, has been a whirlwind. Um, I will say in, in some ways it was good to kind of come in the middle of the pandemic, um, uh, during my time at, at Gibson Dunn, which was the firm where I was at previously, you know, the last sort of eight months of my time there was exclusively COVID crisis counseling, essentially, trying to help businesses shut down, reopen, figure out how to navigate this safely, protect their workers, still honor their civil rights, still have their businesses, you know, survive essentially. So that was um, really great to have that that kind of crash course in all things COVID and then jump right into the EEOC where obviously a substantial portion of our time in the past year has been focused on COVID. Oh, no question about it. And I guess from that personal standpoint, what drove you to want to give so much to public service and uh, become a part of an agency like the EEOC? Well, I've been interested in government for a long time, um, and certainly one doesn't necessarily expect you're going to go in the middle of uh, an insane uh, pandemic. Um, and, you know, I should note, uh, you mentioned that I was uh, the second commissioner to give birth during my time. I was six months pregnant when I started at the wow. um, 
uh, at the commission. Uh, my daughter just uh, celebrated her first birthday last weekend. So, you know, it was it was sort of an insane time to enter the government. But um, I've been very interested for a long time in committing to public service. And um, I was just really very lucky in terms of a model for that, of having two phenomenal mentors who served as an inspiration for being a conservative who cared also deeply about civil rights um, and how to carry that out while serving in government. So while at Gibson, I was lucky enough to uh, count former Secretary of Labor, uh, Gene Scalia, as one of my mentors. And, you know, prior to his uh, service as secretary, of course, he was Solicitor of Labor um, and in a more enforcement role. Um, and so we had a lot of time to talk about during my confirmation process, you know, how important it was to robustly, evenly, and fairly enforce all provisions of the law while you're in this type of uh, position. And then in terms of the EEOC, um, you know, in looking into my work here, I look to Justice uh, Clarence Thomas as a role model. Um, as you may know, he's well known and beloved at the EEOC since his time as chair there. Sure. Um, and it's been my honor and pleasure to have gotten to know him ever since my husband clerked uh, for him on the Supreme Court. And the justice welcomed me like he does all spouses of other clerks into his extended clerk family. But he just spoke really warmly of the agency, its work, its people, um, and really impressed upon me that the agency, um, you know, we have a you know unique opportunity to impact real people's lives in a really concrete way. We're dealing with people's livelihoods, um, both business owners and the employees of those businesses. And so it's just a tremendous privilege and, and responsibility to do that. You know, I, I don't want to uh, digress too much, but you mentioned uh, mentors and mentorship. And, and it struck me because, you know, I think one of the issues that doesn't get a lot of press, so to speak, when we're talking about the impact of the pandemic over the last two years, and in particular, remote work, and, and how many of us are no longer in the office. And, and certainly, I speak about it a lot on my end from the law firm perspective, and uh, new and more junior associates and attorneys coming into the firm. But it's interesting how important mentors are and mentorship is to people, uh, yet it's been so challenging to have those interpersonal relationships because of remote work. I, you know, I think that that's right. I, I think that when we talk about telework, we have to remember that there's benefits and burdens of it. It's not kind of a one size fits all situation. Um, for some people, it's extremely helpful in some aspects at some times. And sometimes there's going to be, there's going to be uh, real downsides to it. Um, Obviously, it's it's tremendously wonderful to be able to have video conferences, but you do kind of, you lose that, um, I've heard of it as sort of like a social cushioning, essentially, all of the water cooler talks or the right. passing someone in the hallway. And those things are really important for integration, for onboarding, for retention purposes, um, you know, and, and, and I think that, and we're going to talk about diversity later in, in the talk, but in terms of retention, I think that that's often where a lot of companies struggle the most in terms of maintaining diversity um, and maintaining a healthy workplace. And, and so if you're missing out on that cushioning that you need for healthy retention, um, that's, that's a real downside. Um, you know, you talked about the integration into the agency during a pandemic, um, I did make an effort to try to come in as much as possible to start. Um, I, I had to work remotely more than I preferred uh, during the very tail end of my pregnancy and then during the first few months. Um, but I just thought it was important to have a sense of place and be there, um, you know, trying to lead by example to 
So um, onboarding, I think it, it can be harder um, remotely. That isn't, that isn't to say that you, there isn't ways to do it, but I think employers have to be really intentional. Yeah. And like everything else, there is no one size fits all, as you said, uh, you know, by industry, by particular company, by particular job. It's uh, there are pluses and minuses to all of these issues, I think, and uh, just a matter of being deliberate uh, and considerate of these issues uh, based on your particular workforce and what works for your company, I think. Yep. Yeah. And, and it's going to vary by individual too, not even just job by job. Um, there's going to be days even where telework's a great job, a great idea for you and other times not so much. So really individualized. No question about it. So before um, I get into a couple of substantive issues, I want to start talking about the agency itself a little bit and uh, questions about composition and process. Uh, first with the former, where are we with the current composition of the EEOC and what should our listeners know generally about the commission's current strategic plan? So um, as always, uh, there are five members of the commission, although I guess maybe I shouldn't say as always, because this is one of the first times in a while that we've had a full panel. That's right. um, so same same number of people, but this time that everyone's filled. Um, right now, we're in an interesting, a little more novel situation in which there are three Republicans, um, but the leadership positions are uh, held by uh, the Democrat members of the commission. So um, Charlotte Burroughs is chair and uh, Jocelyn Samuels is vice chair, and then you've round it out. You've got um, uh, Janet Dillon and uh, Keith Sonderling and then myself. Um, and Commissioner Dillon's term will be wrapping up um, as early as July, although um, listeners should note that um, she could hold over as late as December. So we might have this current configuration um, for the rest of 2022. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that that it's an interesting arrangement and it, and it really means that we need to work more than ever in a bipartisan manner. And to the degree that we do, I think we get more stuff done. Um, that's always my hope that we'll, that we'll do that. Uh, and then in terms of the strategic plan, um, we are currently in the, the planning process for the strategic enforcement plan and strategic plan, the next iterations of those. Um, I believe the agency has uh, noted that it will be voting on those um, come September or October. So we're looking at possibly after Commissioner Dillon's term expires, but maybe not, depending on how you know confirmation process goes. Um, but I'm I'm hopeful that uh, you know we'll land on a on a bipartisan strategic plan. Um, there, I think there's so many things that we share uh, interest in, and there's so much that we can work on uh, collaboratively for the good of both employers and employees. So that's my hope. We'll see how it, how it lands. And so to that point, from a process standpoint, again, you know, I think everybody out there knows about the EEOC, but may not have a full understanding of how things work uh, behind the doors there. How does the commission decide what initiatives it will pursue and, and perhaps what guidance it will provide to the public? Well, when you're talking about guidance, it's important to remember that there's two different kind of buckets of guidance. So there's formal policy guidance. And as a commission, that kind of document requires a full commission vote. Um, a majority vote has to pass it through. And then technical assistance documents, things that are sub-sub-regulatory. So, you know, technical assistance documents that are like the Q&A, the COVID-19, what you should know about COVID-19 and the ADA, uh, et cetera. That is a 
classic uh, technical assistance document, but there are quite a few others, um, other fact sheets, um, other things on our website. Uh, those are issued solely by the chair. Um, and, and it's her prerogative to decide what to do. But of course, she's always listening to all of us. We're listening to stakeholders. Um, I think the general takeaway is the commission um, is really open and always trying to listen to what stakeholders from every avenue of those we listen to and, re- and represent. Um, what are the issues that they're hearing? What are the, where, where do they need guidance, whether it's formal or informal? Um, COVID understandably is one that um, we have heard a lot and, and we've tried to be responsive to, although we're very aware that stakeholders would like more guidance on this issue. And, and I'm fully supportive of that, of that. So, you know, I hope that, uh, that we'll see a continuing rollout of that. Um, but those kinds of documents, the technical assistance ones, at least are in the prerogative of the chair to, to put forth. Um, and then in terms of the, the policy documents, uh, even though they require a full commission vote, the chair controls the agenda. So something like the harassment guidance, um, uh, that won't go up for a vote until the chair decides to put it up for a vote. Um, once she does, all, the whole commission will have to vote on it. Um, and it can't go forward without that. But um, so it's a balance between what requires full commission uh, voting versus what what you know the chair can kind of advance on on her own. Um, but the the background, the, the driving, all of it is listening to what the public is telling us what they need. And uh, that's a great segue uh, also to my next question. You know, the EEOC does and and has particularly recently been doing such a great job listening to the stakeholders. When it comes to public perception, how important is public perception of the EEOC as an agency, uh, whether it's the perception of employers or employees, how important is public perception to the EEOC? You know, I think we're we're all uh, the the five of us on the leadership panel. Um, you know, we're accountable to the public. That's the advantage of having someone who's Senate confirmed. Um, it is a political role as much as it is an enforcement role and a variety of other components of our of our um, position. Um, it's kind of a, it's an interesting hybrid role because we've we've got a judicial role in some ways. We're we're opining on um, things in the federal sector. We've got political aspects. We've got litigation authority. Um, so, you know, it varies, right? It's not a purely political role, but nonetheless, political accountability is very important. Um, so it, that, that is important to know what the public perceives of us, but to some degree, there's, there's, uh, regardless of what the public thinks, we always have the underlying mission, which is to uh, enforce these laws. Um, and our mission is to both prevent and remedy employment discrimination. I would hope that no matter which voices are speaking louder at any particular moment, that we can be really even-handed in that. Um, those that's a dual mission. Um, so, uh, that, you know, hopefully we can kind of keep our eyes on the ball and then try to be responsive to particular areas where we can um, fulfill that mission. And so probably not unlike other federal agencies, whether it's the Department of Labor or the NLRB, I think many employers out there, uh, despite hearing that mission in terms of trying to look at things both from the employer and the employee side, I think many employers, rightly or wrongly, have developed this belief that the EEOC is one of those government agencies that has become very activist and tends to be more pro-employee. How would you respond to that perception? I think the perception is unfortunate. Um, and I think that it's important for the um, 
you know, credibility of the agency to try to be as even handed as possible. We shouldn't be a supersized plaintiffs uh, firm. We should be there to prevent and remedy um, discrimination. And I truly believe that protecting workers starts first with preventing discrimination and harassment. So, you know, prevention's a win-win for both employees and employers. It helps employers create a positive culture. It helps them retain employees um, and it helps them avoid liability litigation. And of course, for the employee themselves, um, the best thing is to never have to go through a harassment or discrimination situation, to not have to go through um, all of that, uh, you know, the real um, hardship that it is to go through a complaint process and, and litigation. So um, I hope that we can be as even-handed as possible because I think it's, it, there's a lot that can be a win-win for employers and employees. And the reality is going through the process um, is typically not win-win for either side, really. Yep. So one other question that I want to get to, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm struck by uh, you noting a few minutes ago, you were talking about how it's important, you know, to to have some of these initiatives come through on a bipartisan uh, way. I, I think there are also some listeners out there who probably view the EEOC, again, not unlike other federal agencies, as a politically driven agency. Um, is that a fair perception? And how would you respond to employers who become concerned that the rules governing their corporate behavior often changes as political administrations in Washington change? Well, you know, I, the structure in theory of having always having Democrats and Republicans at any particular iteration on there um, should work against um, really big shifts in partisanship. And and I think that, you know, it's also important to kind of look at the facts. Um, if you look at the voting record of the commission, the large majority of our votes have been unanimous. So there's been about 135 total votes since October, which is when I came on the commission and we had the full panel. Um, and uh, 70% of them were unanimous. So that's, you know, it's a really large portion um, in terms of litigation, which of course is always a focus for employers. Um, we had 40 unanimous litigation votes out of 67 litigation votes. And then even, which is already 60% unanimous. And then on top of that, there's a whole additional bucket of cases that um, weren't voted through by the commission, but it is important to, to keep in mind that under the new litigation delegation procedure that we voted through in the past year, um, the full commission reviews each and every single case. And then there's a question about whether or not we'll let it pass without a vote. So to the extent that it's gone forward without a vote, the unanimous commission was fine with not holding a vote on it. So those really do reflect unanimous consensus as well. Um, that's a that's a significant portion of of our of our work. But obviously, there you know there are going to be some political um, initiatives uh, that the that the White House is working with the chair and dri and driving some of it. But I think if you look at like the bulk of what we're doing, um, there are certainly structures that are set up that should help a lot of it be um, more bipartisan. That's the goal, at least. Yeah, and it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I think, you know, you, Commissioner Sonderling, certainly, who's also been on the podcast, you do such a great job of this kind of outreach coming on to speak in these uh, types of form and, and getting out there and speaking to the public. And, you know, it, I guess the best way to sort of uh, dispense with a lot of that perception is to provide the statistics and the facts that you're talking about. 
Yeah, so, I think it's a lot like the Supreme Court. Um, you know, so many of their they're they're sometimes viewed as political, but when you look at the vast majority of their cases, um, it's decided unanimously or um, a lot closer than people um think uh, more unanimously than one would expect. So, um, facts hopefully help dispel some perceptions. Yeah, it's not like the Supreme Court's been in the news uh, recently at all. So, uh, um, so let's talk about a couple of issues that I know uh, you feel strongly about. Uh, one COVID-related, one not particularly. Um, the, the first I want to get to is uh, religious discrimination and accommodation. As an issue, religious discrimination and accommodation is not a particularly new issue, um, though it has perhaps been under the spotlight a little bit more during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, employers, I think, have mostly gotten used to addressing accommodation needs and requests with employees who have disabilities, but religious-based accommodation requests are new to so many employers out there in terms of both the number of requests they're getting uh, and the nature of the requests, and I guess to some extent, the support for those requests. Um, let me start by asking you, um, Commissioner Lucas, what prompted the EEOC to update its technical assistance in October of 2021 to specifically address religious discrimination and accommodation in the context of the pandemic? Well, I think this is a great example of how the commission is responsive to facts on the ground, what we're hearing. Um, it, it was obvious that we were dealing with a, a big groundswell in terms of volume of religious accommodation requests and that there were just lots of inquiries about um, uh, employers not knowing exactly how to navigate that process and a lot of employees too. Um, I will note that um, the commission also updated its formal policy guidance on religious discrimination in January of last year. Um, and that's a really helpful uh, document um, that has a lot of information about how to handle the religious accommodation process, including how do you deal with sincerity issues um, as well as undue hardship um, so the COVID-19 technical uh, document draws substantially from that. You'll see links to it uh, to get you to the formal policy document. But, you know, we felt that it was important to have something that was specifically talking about in the COVID-19 um, uh, context, as well as the vaccine context. Um, and the agency also has a tremendous amount of um, history and litigation in the vaccine accommodation space outside of COVID. So there is actually quite a bit of um, both case law and and uh, sort of litigation um, history there for employers to look at. I just think that it often wasn't on people's radars until it became relevant for them. And when we're talking about religious accommodation, I mean, it's, it's certainly maybe dangerous is strong, but dangerous uh, to go too deep into the sincerity of uh, religious beliefs Although, you know, employers don't have to give a pass on that part of the analysis 100% of the time either. Yeah, I think that there is a lot of litigation risk um, in that prong. And I think a lot of uh, employers unwisely focused a ton on, on that instead of talking about the undue hardship prong of things. Um, you know, the agency's position, which I think is quite consistent with a large amount of case law, is that it really should be a very light touch on sincerity. Now, Yes, there are undoubtedly um, situations where we have objective reasons to check in on that, um, but it, it needs to be a sparing inquiry. Um, and you're on much safer ground if you're um, taking someone at face value, uh, generally assuming sincerity, and then moving on to, okay, what can I practically do to, uh, to deal 
of that. That's where the undue hardship um, analysis, um, that's the heart of it is, is how do we practically work this out? Um, and it's, it's a lot safer. When you're focusing on religious sincerity, not only may you just sort of trip up on whether or not you're inappropriately looking too much into it, so failing the accommodation process, but you also could have... Um, a lot of ancillary harassment claims, disparate treatment claims, retaliation claims. So I think the, the risk of liability is a lot higher if you're focusing on that prong. And yet some of the biggest challenges that employers are facing right now uh, in the intersection of religious dis- uh, accommodation requests and the COVID-19 pandemic, or when they're receiving uh, what we've all seen as these mass internet letters that employees seem to be providing or, or accommodation requests that may be based on claims that uh, are not factually accurate. What should employers be doing to address these types of accommodation requests in order to comply with Title VII? You know, I, I still think that it, it's really important for employers first to take a, a, a good look at the compliance uh, assistance that we have in our formal guidance and our informal guidance. Um, and then also try to take a pause and Keep in mind that they do receive large volumes of other types of requests like FMLA, FMLA, disability. Now, maybe not all at once, not at the same high volume, but anytime you're starting out with the premise that people are probably lying to you, you're going to risk tripping up. That's just not the right um, attitude to be approaching it um, to, to prevent the likelihood of you, you know, doing a misstep there. Um, And then in terms of, you know, claims that may not be factually accurate, you know, I do want to, you know, press back on that a little bit because that's very much not what the sincerity analysis is supposed to be about. It doesn't really matter um, if someone is just wildly factually inaccurate. What matters is, is it a sincere religious belief? And so anytime an employer is trying to say, well, gotcha um, on this. So, you know, the example I think you may be alluding to is this idea that um, you, a, a very common religious accommodation request in the vaccine space that we're seeing right now are people saying that they're concerned about fetal cell involvement. And then employers may be tempted to test that by asking whether or not they are compliant with um, a variety of other medicines. Um, you should not be playing... Um, uh, judge and jury about whether or not someone has a consistent um, religious belief. Now, sure, there can be objective situations where you have a sense that the person truly doesn't believe what they believe, but trying to fact check someone's religious belief is just a really high risk um, uh, endeavor, um, especially since I think there are ways to kind of, you don't want to be getting into debates of theology with someone. Um, you're a much safer ground to, um, unless you really have very objective a belief that this person is faking it, to assume sincerity and then try to see what you can practically do on, on undue hardship. That's very helpful. Um, thank you. So you, you can't talk about religious discrimination without talking, I think, more broadly about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so when we do talk about DE&I training at companies, which I'm sure is something that you believe also is very important, most certainly include in their DE&I training gender and race uh, as primary topics. Should religion and religious accommodation be included in these DE&I trainings as well? Yes, I, I definitely think so. Um, and I think that it's really important for 
employers to take a step back and make sure that HR and their in-house counsel are aligned with their diversity efforts. I think sometimes you see in large businesses that the diversity um, uh, wing of the company is operating kind of separately from that. This needs to be an integrated approach. Um, and, and when you do that, when you're talking to in-house counsel, when you're talking to the HR folks and you're talking to the diversity, equity, inclusion folks, you're going to make sure that you're um, legally compliant across the board and you're being helpful across the board. And that makes, uh, includes making sure that you're talking about all protected bases uh, equally. Religion still is a protected base. Um, and if you focus on one over the other, you can run risks of um, uh, liability arising or just having a blind spot, not being truly inclusive of all of your employees. The EEOC um, provided any type of guidance on sort of the content, the how to conduct DEI trainings. Is that something that uh, the EEOC looks to get granular about? Well, we recently announced the Hire Initiative, um, which is going to be focusing um, quite a bit on talking about voluntary diversity initiatives. Um, we've heard a lot about employers interested in getting more guidance about how to do that in a compliant manner, but also um, help them uh, uh, attract or retain a diverse group of employees. So um, I do anticipate we might be having more guidance in that space uh, in the future. Um and, you know, in general, I think we're talking about that all of us in, in variety of capacities It's an area that I'm very um, interested in. I think that there are a tremendous amount of tools that employers can use that are really a rising tide lifts all boats kind of situation. And then I think that there's also um, some that sound really attractive to a lot of employers, but are actually going to incur some liability. So, um, you know, you need to have a nuanced, um, legally compliant view of, of DEI initiatives. So I'm hoping that the EUC is the perfect place to, to speak into those hard conversations that not everyone feels comfortable having. So uh, stay tuned. I hope that there'll be more of that um, for me and others on the commission. Yes. And I know uh, Commissioner Sondling uh, was on a few episodes ago talking about uh, artificial intelligence and the use of AI tools. And I know that's been a big topic as well in terms of this uh, overarching principle of you know, diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion, and how we can make sure, whether it's through the recruitment process or through performance management, uh, we're not going backwards when we use some of these tools as companies. Yep. The, you know, the law stays consistent, but the applications keep on getting more and more novel. And Commissioner Sonderling's work on AI is, is just phenomenal to raising people's awareness of how um, age-old uh, kind of avenues for discrimination can come up in um, you know, our, our kind of cutting-edge uh, technologies. Absolutely. Um, one particular subset or issue uh, when we talk about religious discrimination and harassment is anti-Semitism. Uh, last May 2021, uh, the EEOC unanimously approved a resolution condemning aggression and violence toward Jewish individuals. And earlier this month, uh, you and Commissioner Sonderling uh, participated in an incredibly well-received webinar with the Brandeis Center on combating anti-Semitism. Is this more of a focus of the EEOC than it has been in recent years? Um, I think yes. When you when you look back about what we've been uh, doing lately, I think uh, we're hopefully going to see a rising focus on anti-Semitism in, in response to sadly a, a rising uh, um, need for that kind of focus. You know, the agency um, has 
done a tremendous job of being responsive to when there's been a spike in a particular kind of discrimination or harassment, um, try to speak into that moment. Um, we saw a lot of that uh, post 9-11 with a real rise in religious discrimination against Muslims or other minority faiths that might be um, misunderstood to be Muslims by some of the general public, like um, uh, Sikhs or uh, other uh, Hindus, uh, other uh, a variety of other minority uh, faiths that um, were conflated with with Muslims in that um, post 9-11 uh, panic by a lot of people. And we brought a lot of religious discrimination cases, saw a lot of charges coming out of that. Um, and I am hoping that we'll see a similar robust response by the commission against anti-Semitism as we sadly have seen shocking levels of hate directed against um, Jewish individuals in our country in the, in the past year or so. And what are some of the statistics uh, that prompted this uh, focus by the EEOC? Um, well, it, it's really shocking. Um, uh, you know, the American Jewish Committee had a recent very troubling report um, indicating that one out of every four American Jews over the past year have been victims of anti-Semitic attacks, um, and that almost 40% of American Jews have uh, changed their behaviors, including limiting their activities and concealing their Jewishness out of fears uh, uh, related to anti-Semitism. That's really horrifying. Um, and it's even worse for the younger set. Um, you know, uh, I think it's important to look at some of these numbers for college students because A, they're often early workers or they are going into employment. Um, the Brandeis Center, uh, which we had given this presentation uh, through, uh, found that 65% of openly Jewish college students felt unsafe and 50% had hidden their Jewish identity. Um, similarly, ADL and Hillel uh, found that one out of every three uh, Jewish college students had personally experienced anti-Semitism. And so those numbers are horrifying. And also, I think really troubling, there's a big gap in terms of American Jews' perception of what's going on versus the general public. So we're trying to increase awareness um, so people can be uh, you know, aware of what's going on um, and help ally with their Jewish colleagues and neighbors um, during this, uh, this troubling time. And, and obviously, without uh, diminishing uh, the impact of anti-Semitism on the Jewish community, um, is it fair to say that uh, it's not just about uh, Jewish individuals, Jewish employees, but we're talking about a much broader concept than even just religious discrimination claims when we're talking about anti-Semitism? Yeah, that, that's right. Um, I think that sometimes you know, we're, we're trying to study and understand why um, we sometimes don't see as much reporting or litigation in this space, despite the fact that we've seen a uh, rise here. And I think some of it is um, we do have some Jewish individuals who worry that if they don't have a certain level of religious observance, that they can't uh, bring a claim here. But it's really important to remember that anti-Semitism is broader than religious discrimination. Um, uh, if you are being targeted based on being Jewish, that could be religious discrimination, even if you yourself aren't personally particularly observant, or um, you don't have to be an Orthodox Jew, for example, or Hasidic Jew to be able to bring a religious discrimination claim. But even separately, even if there isn't a religious element, there could be a national origin claim. Sometimes there's race discrimination claims. Um, ancestry can can vary, depends on the facts. And it's also really important to, to remember that not all uh, American Jews or Jews in the world are um, uh, Caucasian. Um, there are a variety of ethnicities uh, who are Jewish uh, um, 
religiously Jewish um, or ethnically Jewish, um, just depending on their family history. And, and so uh, you could have other race discrimination claims kind of coming in based on people's perceptions of who is or isn't Jewish. Um, and so uh, we try to be really comprehensive in helping people uh, realize the full scope of their rights. And I suspect, like everything, uh, the first step to addressing anti-Semitism is acknowledging that it's a problem in the first place. Um, many businesses and, and even beyond businesses, I suspect, view this perhaps uh, as a societal problem. Maybe they don't look at it as much as an employment issue. Um, but what are some best practices for employers to actually focus on and combat anti-Semitism in the workplace? Um, well, it, it's first start with awareness and, and then make clear that you're aware of it by speaking up unequivocally in support of your Jewish employees uh, and against anti-Semitism. That can mean the world. Um, keep in mind that things that are happening outside of the workplace can spill over pretty easily. Um, be really aware of the hybrid nature of work today for many businesses, the lines between personal and private and Business are blurring as we have more and more things go digital as workplaces, you're teleworking or hybrid working. Um, you've got Slack or social media that maybe isn't officially the work space, but has started impacting um, the work environment. All of those things vary. So really important to have a clear guidance about posting on social media and online um, and calling out specifically issues of anti-Semitism because we haven't in particular seen a lot of anti-Semitism arising in the digital space. People, for whatever reason, feel like the filter that they might put on um, some of their prejudices uh, is not there when they're uh, online. Um, so uh, make sure that you update your social media policies. Um, other things you can consider, um, having voluntary faith-based resource groups. E Sometimes people call it an employee resource group in ERG, um, either an interfaith one or uh, uh, um, providing one for Jewish employees specifically. Um, sorry, road, road call <laughs> interrupting us. Um, uh, other ways that you can be supportive is to have a clear policy uh, about religious accommodations. So that's uh, a good practice in general, both um, for defending against or pre uh, preventing anti-Semitism as well as um, dealing with COVID-19 uh, or other religious accommodations. I think in general, employers need to be aware that now that religious accommodations have come much more to the forefront of people's minds, you may see increased religious accommodation requests on more than just COVID. So really make sure you update your religious accommodation policy or actually have one to begin with. Um, some, com some companies didn't have that. Um, and then um, another area is, uh, and, and this I think is one that may be challenging um, or a harder discussion for some employers to have, but really audit your DEI materials. Um, be careful, be thoughtful. There's power in those, um, but they, um, if they're not done well, can have costs to um, the employees that you think that you're trying to help. Um, make sure that when you're talking about uh, tricky concepts of power and privilege, racial identity, um, conclusions about racial or ethnic disparities, that some of those things can tie directly into tropes about anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism often comes off of conspiracies or stereotypes about power or privilege or overrepresentation, um, And that's going to tie directly into to some content that is, is dealing with those things. Make sure you're really screening for anti-Semitism when you talk about those topics. And for all of those out there who, you know, hear these kinds of discussions and say, well, 
I don't discriminate. I don't have any biases. I'm not a racist. I'm not an anti-Semite. Um, uh, you know, part of this is going beyond the intentional or the conscious bias and really getting into an understanding of unconscious or implicit biases, right? Well, you know, honestly, sadly, I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that is conscious bias. Um, but, but yes, I think that sometimes people inadvertently are saying things and they perhaps are being well-meaning, um, but it can have spillover effects. So um, I think the more you're aware, the less likely you're going to find yourself um, inadvertently um, har- harming someone. Um, but, you know, I think people do need to be um, perhaps more honest that some of this uh, are conscious decisions that you're picking and choosing between different protected classifications. And that's um, really unacceptable. We need to really evenly um, be inclusive of all people and protective of everyone. And we need to, as employers, um, employers need to find ways to support all of their employees. Um, yeah, that, well, that's, that's the goal. Yeah, and it's not just, as you said, I think it's not just recognizing the diverse nature of the particular work environment you're in. The the next part is equally, if not more important, that's being inclusive of that diverse workforce. That's right. You you know, the the goal of having a diverse workforce is then to retain those workers and to be equally supportive of all of them. So um, another issue, and, and I guess coming back to where we started, and that is, of course, COVID-19. Um, I want to touch briefly uh, on COVID-19 because there's been some action here with the EEOC. Um, in fact, the EEOC recently issued guidance dealing with COVID-19 as a disability. Um, was that guidance uh, about providing new rules that are unique to COVID-19 as a disability, or was it more about recognizing or reminding that the old rules still do apply to this new condition? Uh, definitely the latter. Um, you know, I, I think that this was both long overdue guidance, but also guidance that should have been apparent to a lot of, uh, a lot of people, um, Hopefully, it's still very helpful for people to see that crystallized in this novel context. But um, I think the overarching story of the pandemic is there's a lot of long-standing rules that have always applied here, and there's no pandemic exception for them. Um, and and that's true in the accommodation space, and it's true in the disability space. Um, you know, you you don't get a pandemic uh, um, exception to civil rights, so. Um, you know, I think that this is really applying existing ADA law to this novel situation. Um, you know, I, I was pleased to see that the, the technical assistance um, confirmed that most normal or average cases of COVID would not be a disability. Um, you know, this isn't breaking ground on transitory illnesses. Um, they still remain not a disability under the ADA. Um, but it's also recognizing that that there are a host of cases of COVID that may not technically be recognized as long COVID, but nonetheless are stretching out to a degree um, that uh, it it may in fact be a disability. And that's based on all of the sort of standard uh, uh, tests under the ADA for what would constitute um, an impairment um, and all of the additional um, uh, uh, considerations there. Um, 
has it actually, uh, you know, significantly limited your uh, major life activities? Um, so we wanted to make sure we were covering more than just long COVID because obviously that is a serious problem. But there's going to be any number of people who have who struggle with getting that formal diagnosis, and employers should could should keep in mind that there may be cases of COVID that even if someone hasn't gotten that formal diagnosis of long COVID, um, it is actually functionally impacting them as a disability under the test set out under the ADA. It's a great reminder as we are sitting here still in the middle of this global pandemic. uh, It's a great reminder that issues of discrimination, harassment, retaliation, and and accommodation rights, uh, they're not suspended because we are in a pandemic. Yep. Um, and, you know, we, we had some recent COVID-19 litigation um, that was authorized during my, my uh, term. Uh, you know, I think that, again, the, the message there is that um, there was no suspension of the rules. And also, um, these, in my opinion, a lot of these were uh, more obvious. Uh, you know, you, um, you can never make a decision based simply on fear or stereotypes, Um, you never can harass someone, uh, for having a disability. Um, there is no, um, paternalism that's acceptable under the ADA. That's always been like the longstanding goal for the ADA is, is, uh, disability is often premised on stereotypes or paternalism. Um, that's how I think a lot of companies misstepped into things that were very well-meaning trying to protect their, um, workers. Um, but that's not not your role um, to, to be paternalistic. So I think that's something that people should kind of have that takeaway is um, you can be well-meaning and still misstep. Um, so it's really important to, to check the rules and um, pay attention to what you should be doing to be compliant. No, great points. And, and before I uh, let you get back to your real work, and I am so appreciative, Commissioner Lucas, uh, of you coming on to the podcast today, uh, I want to talk uh, very briefly about uh, EEOC outreach uh, attempts. I know you've mentioned it a couple of times today, and I know it is such an important uh, aspect of the commission's role. What does the EEOC offer from an outreach standpoint if employers and employees, for that matter, want to develop a better understanding of how the EEOC views all of these issues that we've been talking about? Um, well, the COVID-19 technical assistance document is a tremendous piece of outreach. Um, it's it's gotten really long at this point, but there's a lot of different subsections, and hopefully you can um, go to the hyperlink that's most appropriate for you. Um, we also have a tremendous resource in our formal policy guidance on religious discrimination um, that people should look to uh, to help them navigate the religious accommodation process. Um, and then we've got a, a host of compliance information um, that's targeted to a variety of different subsects. So small business, we have a whole small business center on our website. We've got uh, youth at work uh, materials for those who are just starting out in their employment. Um, and uh, a lot of outreach goes on every day across the country at our um, local offices, each district. Um, um, conducts a host of outreach uh, uh, programs, um, and uh, that includes no-cost presentations and, and other outreach. Um, there's also uh, outreach uh, programs and training that you can, uh, that's a fee-based, um, like our Excel conference um, and our EEOC training institute. So um, there are a lot of resources out there for people to better understand um, both the rights and responsibilities. And so can employers and employees expect uh, 2022 to be another busy year for the EEOC? I think that is undoubtedly true. 
<laughs> probably will prove to be the understatement of the year. Um, Commissioner Andrea Lucas, uh, again, thank you so much uh, for joining the podcast. This has been so informative and I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. So glad to be here. Wow, that was incredibly informative, substantive, and I really hope helpful and useful to all of you out there. I really appreciate and thank EEOC Commissioner Andrea Lucas for joining me, and I will continue to do my best to bring on guests who I think will provide tremendous value uh, to all of you listeners. And uh, as always, I really appreciate all of you listening to this podcast. Thank you so much. Keep the feedback coming. Keep the questions coming. Keep reaching out if you've got topics that you want me to address on the podcast. I love uh, hearing from you, uh, the good and any constructive criticism that you may have as well. That's all for now, though, and until the next time, as always, I hope all of your labor is productive.